This is Broadcast Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to Broadcast Talking TV. I'm Jake Cantor. You may have only just cleared the boozy fog from Edinburgh, but allow us to take your minds back to Scotland for a wee while as we run down five highlights from the television festival. Also on the show, Talkback boss Dan Baldwin gives us the guided tour on the resurrection of Through the Keyhole. And finally, in our programming preview section, we assess Channel 4's follow-up to Educating Essex and take a look at Jason Byrne's BBC One comedy, Father Figure. That's all to come. Broadcast editor Lisa Campbell, our resident columnist Stephen D. Wright and Dan Baldwin are with me to run through that little lot. But you've been a busy man this week, haven't you, uh, recording the first in the new series of Celebrity Juice? How, yep. how did that go? Yeah, we recorded that last night. Uh, Fern was back from her pregnancy <laughs> and uh, obviously uh, she had lots of jokes aimed at her. She was on fantastic form. First one was last night, we had some good guests on and Dr Christian ended up tongue-in Keith Lemon, so you're pretty much <laughs> going to get a standard celebrity juice fare. Sounds as mad as ever. Uh, Lisa, you were, um, well, we were all at the Broadcast Hot Shots uh, party last night. Yeah, it was, it was a really busy party and lots of bright young things who are really lovely because they haven't been poisoned by the industry yet. No, don't, I won't say that, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we, should we get cracking? Um <laughs> Let's start with Talking TV's top five moments from Edinburgh. Uh, There's a temptation here to go all top of the pops, but uh, for you list show enthusiasts, I'm afraid these are in no particular order. So first up, uh, Kevin Spacey's McTaggart lecture. Here's a clip of a phrase that resonated with the audience of TV execs. You know, and there's been a lot of myth. It's been around for a while that nobody knows anything. That making good programming is just a crapshoot. But frankly... That's just bullshit. We do know how this works. And it's always been about empowering artists. It's always been about total abandon. So we know what works. And the only thing we don't know is why is it so difficult to find executives with the fortitude, the wisdom, and the balls to do it. Well, I mean, it was a good boost for morale if you're creative. I mean, what I thought was interesting was his knowledge and awareness of convergence and all of the opportunities that that creates. I mean, yeah, look, he didn't give us a blueprint for what to do beyond everybody get off the creators' backs. But um, sometimes it's enough just to have that said loud and clear. This is a creative industry and we need to give the creative space. In my opinion, it's the best McTaggart I've heard in 15 years. Really brilliant to have somebody who's so talented to um, stand up and speak on behalf of the creatives. And it doesn't surprise me at all that he got such a long-standing ovation. That was completely mesmerising. I think people almost forgot to applaud because it's Kevin Spacey and he was just incredible. So we've just heard from Spacey and some reaction from the BBC's Pat Young and indie execs Cat Lewis and John Gilbert. Uh, Lisa, it was clearly uh, a well-delivered uh, rallying call for creativity and talent, but was it all style over substance? Well, it was everything you'd expect from a Hollywood actor. And I feel actually for whoever has to stand up there next year and attempt to convey that amount of passion and persuasiveness. And of course, creatives loved it because it was bottom up view rather than the usual top down. So that was both a welcome breath of fresh air and, as many people said afterwards, empowering and inspiring. But beyond that, there was nothing really new. You know, lord the creatives, have a pop at the suits, check, talk of a golden age, 
single out shows that no one's going to argue with, like The Sopranos, and signal a warning about the future of the digital future. So, you know, nothing radical. Stephen, you uh, were in London. I mean, an objective onlooker in London. Did any of the messages resonate down here? Not really. <laughs> but no, basically, it was. it's a good speech. You know, yes, trust the creatives, yeah, yeah, whatever, blah, blah. It's the same every three or four years, trust the creatives, trust the creatives. And then somebody says the networks aren't so bad. And then somebody says, trust the creatives. It's, you know, it's alternate years. Yeah. And everyone goes and then they go and get drunk and shag each other. I mean, that's basically <laughs> the message of Edinburgh. Peter Fincham said it was a it was a positive McTaggart and he likes positive McTaggarts. I mean, did, you, did that come across? Edinburgh this year was like Kevin Spacey's stag do. <laughs> I thought it was, you know, it's it, we needed a few days to recover afterwards and we needed a couple of days lead up to it. Peter, you know, he was he's obviously going to give some really positive quotes because he had he was probably the man of the festival. He came out of it shining, didn't he? Both in uh, in Channel of the Year and also uh, in the in the broadcast survey. Quite a contrast to last year when he faced yeah. the humiliation by Keith Lemon, which I'm sure you remember very well. <laughs> yeah, I think my words to Keith Lemon were "mot him out." <laughs> um, I agree with you. He he talked about creative abandon, and I don't think creatives do need abandoning. I think you know if the, the biggest creatives, if you give them too much space, they end up uh, creating a load of shit. And I think that it's about relationships actually, and it's about enhancing a creative. And and I think television is more about relationships. So if you get the relationship right between the creative and the creative editor then I think you're going to get some gold. Whereas if you let the creative do what they want and they're not guided slightly by another creative, then I think you're going to get a pile of old steaming turd. Um, (laughs) Well, as we found out in another session, uh, the words creative abandon certainly struck a chord, but uh, give producers too much freedom and things don't always go well. Here's CPL Productions boss Murray Boland on making the worst TV of his life. The idea was you went from club to club every week, a different club, And most of the clubs weren't set up for hosting what was a really complicated live broadcast. People realised it was a total car crash. So hundreds and hundreds of people turned up just to see it go wrong. And um, there was a run on the green room bar. And it shorted the electrics in the club, so the whole programme fell off air. And and then by about programme three or four, we made the sort of schoolboy error of not hiring enough floor managers. So I started having to queue all the items that were taking place. So there were people going to air without realising they were on television. And about halfway through, when the whole, and all the drunk guests were getting drunk, nobody was making sense, nobody could hear what was happening. At one point I appeared talking to a man who was doing nice sculpture, and I was heartily sick of the whole fucking thing at that point. I was saying to him, look, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is ridiculous. I mean, Charlie Parsons is a madman. And I'm just pouring out my worries to this man without realising I was on television. <laughs> and, uh, and he was just making an ice sculpture. And, uh, and then the best bit, the best bit of all, was at the end of this two-hour farrago, um, everybody was pissed. I was just thinking, counting down the seconds till the thing went off air. And I had to propose a toast to futurism. And as I, the floor manager was counting me down, this other guy, who was totally pissed, got up and took an air pistol out of his jacket, and he shot my co-host in the face with it. <laughs> <laughs> and all you saw me doing at the end of the show was going, for fuck's sake, I have fucking had it with this. That was it. 
Lisa, what did you make of the session? I'd love to see more sessions like this because it was real and you get so many people hailing their successes at events like BAFTA or RTS or Edinburgh and I don't think I've ever seen people admit to their mistakes in such a, a funny refreshingly open and honest way and it was very entertaining listening to Clive Tullow explain why he ever thought Beat the Crusher with Freddie Starr was a good idea (laughs) and you also got to hear about why things went wrong and the lessons learned and and Jonathan Stadlin revealed how there's something about Miriam actually started as quite a sort of serious and interesting idea about transsexuality but ended up becoming more haha they're dry humping a woman who has a penis so it was interesting to look at how ideas develop into something unrecognisable. Um, and I think an interesting thing that, that came up is a sort of flaw in the development process. I mean, Jonathan Stadlin talked about the fact you have a certain number of commissions to hit as your target in development. When you hand over your idea, you think, thank God I'm not the one having to make that because for ambitious idea, read impossible. What's the worst TV of your life, Stephen? Well, I'm making it right now, actually. <laughs> but we'll all chat about it in Edinburgh in a few years and we'll all laugh about it. We'll like laugh how, about how, how like glorious it was. Me. <laughs> no, I mean, I've made a lot of those crap programmes. I mean, most of the ones that were mentioned I've sort of been involved in. So, uh... Well, you know, many people said that. Probably a good thing, isn't it, to have some turkeys and some amazing shows rather than a load of mediocre stuff in yeah, the middle. Definitely, well, definitely. Down, uh, I mean, everyone was saying it was sort of refreshingly honest for the TV industry. I mean, do, do you think that TV execs are sometimes unwilling to talk about their failures? Oh, yeah, I think so. Most definitely. You know, success has many fathers. Failure is a bastard. Everyone knows that. <laughs> you know, as soon as there's a success, everyone's running and uh, taking credit for it. And when it's not, people are running away from it. So more, so more on that, on, on our third point, actually, because broadcast We Need to Talk About commissioning session was one of the most popular sessions at, at the whole of Edinburgh. Uh, Hunt session, <laughs> where, which was bursting at the seams. Everybody was there expecting yeah. something. There were people standing and, at the sides. Yeah, but nothing happened. I mean, Channel 4 had the hardest ride, uh, with one question showing that 61% of indies believe the broadcaster's commissioning standards have deteriorated in the past six years. Everybody knows you're very hands-on. you've always been Um, and as you say it's your name above the door just like Peggy Mitchell and the Queen Vic do you sometimes think that your commissioners are trying to second guess you or that sometimes they're not on the same page as you so they give one message to producers and then you know you might see a show and give another message no, I think it's a bit of a myth, to be completely honest. I mean, the extraordinary thing about my job is, is, frankly, the scale of it. I mean, I'm sitting in the creative direction for Channel 4, More 4, E4, the scheduling direction for 4, 7, and for Film 4. And it is, it is in, utterly inconceivable, however much I might want to, to, to be across absolutely everything. Uh, Lisa, here we are talking about Channel 4 again. But are they listening? Mm, well, it was a packed room. And I think there was an expectation, or, or a hope, I think, that... Jay Hunt might perhaps acknowledge some of the issues that were raised in the survey and actually it was a much more defensive response than any of the other controllers. Um, I mean, they, they sort of sat there, took it on the chin, said, we're really disappointed, we really want to change, we really want to do something. Jay was sort of, well, I've got another four surveys in my handbag that show this, that and the other, um, you know, sort of pitting poll against <laughs> poll, talking about the sample size. I mean, you know, none of the others questioned the validity of the survey. 
I think we should have a poll to decide which is the best poll. <laughs> I like that idea. Maybe we should adopt that. I mean, she. I mean, she has a sort of rapid fire delivery, but I think people generally, from those that I spoke to, felt that she gave a reasonable defence of Channel Four. Yeah. I mean, do you agree with that? I would say that she's a politician. You know, she's very good at answering questions, and I'm. And I don't say that as uh, I'm not damning her. I think that's a brilliant skill. You have to face up to the criticism you get. And it was very clear. It was in black and white. Yet she was trying to bat it away. When what she should have done is she should have done, I think, what Stuart Murphy did and just said, well, do you know what? I'm a bit upset about that and I'd like to do something about that. It's almost like she's she's scared to show weakness. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with showing weakness as it, long as you then strive to improve. Stephen, did did some of the findings from our survey concern you or did, did, do you recognise some, some of the facts that we pulled out? It totally concerns me. I mean, it's my life. It's uh, it's my daily uh, my daily grind. The good thing about Edinburgh is people are, it can say anything. You know, you can be you're not necessarily ripped apart when you go onto those sessions. It's always good to admit your failings because people forgive you almost immediately. When you get defensive and try and ignore them, when everyone is screaming at you, it just looks poor. But the general, you know, malaise in telly, you know, the commissioners having too much power or being too inexperienced is not just Channel 4-centric, it's everything, you know. It's the creative stupid, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Back to Kevin, it's like, you know, it's, he, I mean, I'd love to have seen him say, commission more and stop pissing around, which is really the message that I was interested in. Thanks, guys. Uh, talking of the number four, here's our fourth highlight. See what I did there, Dan? You're a pro. <laughs> uh, it was a surprise appearance of uh, BBC Director General Tony Hall. He arrived in Chino's after a whirlwind trip to San is Francisco. Is that important? The it is very important. Is it it was important to me, I Sorry, thought. I didn't realise. Well, he was, he was in San Francisco, so he was kicking back on the beach, clearly. Does San Francisco have a direct flight to Edinburgh? <laughs> <laughs> I think he went via London. Yeah. He certainly arrived by train. But he was there discussing uh, BBC crises. Yes, that's, that's plural. And cultural transformation. This all felt like a rather cleverly constructed PR stunt. Did you, did you think that, Lisa? Yeah, I, well, I was one of those that fell for it and thought, oh, amazing, he's just turned up. This is so exciting. And, and of course, he was stage managing the whole thing, waiting in the wings, listening to the criticism and working out his response. And it was a great performance by him. And I think actually, um, you know, sort of going back to the point about acknowledging your failings, he's very good at that. But of course, they're none of his failings, so it's quite easy for him to do it. So, you know, he, he sort of sat there and he acknowledged Liz, Liz McKean's, you know, brilliant line, I think she gave about, um, you know, the officer class at the BBC. And he acknowledged that and he referred to a, an appalling divide between, you know, the, the programme makers on the ground and the, and the people at the top. And I think we have a clip of that. I think someone used the phrase officer class, and I think that's right. And then the, the people who were doing um, all the hard work making the programme. So I'm concentrating on trying to um, lance that particular issue, bringing out in my first patch some of the things I think we've just got to do differently. I mean, DMI is one of those things. But also looking at ways in which uh, I can liberate the organisation for people to make the best programmes of their lives. Tony clearly talking there about this divide. How do they bridge the gap, do you think, Stephen? God, ask me the hard question. (laughs) As somebody who's always wanted to be in the officer class, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I'm particularly interested in how he's going to sort this out. Same old, same old with the BBC. You know, there's always a problem. There's always too many people. You know, I love that line about, you know, if you make a decision at Google, it's only two people have to decide at the BBC. It's four yeah. separate committees for 10 months and whatever else. And, you know, that can all be sorted. He could do that. But they've all said that. I mean, I seem to remember Greg Dyke saying the same thing as well. 
I'm a little bit old in in the tooth and uh, cynical to kind of go woohoo, but I mean certainly like him, and I think he's had a good Edinburgh in terms of, you know, he's kind of proved himself as sort of one of us, I suppose. But whether or not anything will change, you know, let's fast forward five years and hear the next one saying we're going to get rid of this and we're going to get rid of that and all the wastage and everything else. And, you know, it's, it's so on. It does so seem forth. like recycled messages. I mean, what I can't get my head around is that the BBC must have been so top heavy at, at some points in the past because all they seem to be doing is cutting back, cutting back and still being able to run. You know, it's the Indian civil service in 1947. <laughs> well, it feels like Tony's going to tackle that and the BBC is certainly trying to a- a- attempt to emerge from turmoil. But one broadcaster that uh, seems to be a sort of picture of serenity at the moment is ITV. And if it was anyone's Edinburgh, it was it was ITV's. Dan, you've been chomping at the bit to, to talk about to talk about Peter Fincham. No, and, I, and, and his, I just think uh, you know, I think uh, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Peter ran a very successful indie, and and he, you know, he did extremely well in in your survey, in the broadcast survey, that the poll, the best poll out of all the polls, um, and I think that was a very good poll <laughs> that you did, uh, uh, and I think that, you know, it, 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 that's no coincidence, I think that it's crucial if you're a commissioner to have some sort of experience of producing telly, I think that the best commissioners are, and, you know, uh, Broadchurch was a huge success for him, you know, we deliver a lot of stuff for them, so I think they're very, very good. Um, <laughs> and I like Peter. I like, you know, I think that it's about decent people, and this might come back to bite me on the ass, but I like him. I think he's a nice guy, and I think that, you know, I think he runs quite a good ship over there. And I'm, I'm pleased that they won Channel of the Year, and I'm pleased that they've done well. Uh, but that'll all change next year. When <laughs> yeah, else probably. But I mean, at the moment, ITV seems in genuinely rude health, whichever way you look at it. What do you think has been behind the re-emergence, apart from Peter and his sort of tight-knit team? Uh, well, I mean, he talked about stability, and I think I think that's that's key, you know, sort of stable in terms of the commissioning team and, and him at the top. But also, I think Adam Crozier and his transformation strategy seems to be working well. The ad market's back, um, you know, creatively, you know, as we said, they've smashed it in drama. The big end hits are, you know, are still performing. They've had factual success with the prison series, sort of more hard-hitting stuff in addition to the usual travelogues. And just, I think it feels like a really confident channel. The word is confidence. That's the thing about channel. And it comes across in the commissioning, in the whatever. ITV feels like ITV again. It goes back to to Peter's sort of mention of stability, doesn't it? But I think we're going to have to leave it there on that one, guys. That's Talking TV's take on Edinburgh 2013. Uh, My thanks to Lisa, Stephen and Dan. Now, during his Edinburgh controller session, ITV's Peter Fincham described the reinvention of Through the Keyhole as a perfectly tailored suit for celebrity juice host Keith Lemon. The format, which invites viewers to snoop round the homes of the rich and famous, was propelled into the nation's affections by David Frost and Lloyd Grossman in the 1990s. It will return to ITV this weekend with the irrepressible Lemon casting light on palatial cribs and causing trouble with his own unique brand of celeb fuel jest. In a minute, we'll hear from Dan Baldwin, the man responsible for this latest TV resurrection. But first, here's a clip of Lemon touring a house in the first episode. The place is smart, traditional, some may say palatial. Let's get involved. As I walk into the dining room forward slash over lounge, I've noticed that the walls are splattered in ship pictures. Is this a clue or does this person genuinely just like a good ship picture? (laughs) 
As I sit down at this table, it's obviously apparent that it has a dual purpose. They not only dine on this table, but they use it for debates. Mass. De oh. <laughs> debates in mass. Debates in mass. <laughs> Uh, we're all chuckling away here. Dan, I mean, ITV's been mulling this one for a, for a couple of years, hasn't it? Uh, how did you convince them to take the plunge eventually? Well, it wasn't. It was about convincing Sir David Frost. Keith Lemon is someone who's going to bring a brand new twist to this show, and he does. You know, it brings it into the comedy world. It breathes life into an old format. And I think we were all pretty convinced about it. Uh, we, we thought he could do it. And let's face it, we all like being nosy, don't we? We just want to look around people's houses. But if you can then add a, a comedy twist to that, then uh, I think you're I think you're getting somewhere with it. And uh, you know we had to speak to Sir David Frost, and he wanted to have breakfast with Keith Lemon, and it was all a bit like <laughs> keep them away, keep them separate. These two should never meet. Um, uh, but filmed it if they did. I know it would have been great. But uh, so we we you know we filmed a pilot. Lloyd Grossman came down to the pilot because he owns part of the format. So David Frost, Lloyd Grossman and a guy called I think Kevin who first came up with the idea on TVAM uh, as a segment. And uh, Lloyd came down and he loved it. So talk us through it a bit. I mean, what are you doing differently, if anything? Well, it's a hybrid of a chat show and touring around people's houses. And, and what we've done is that Keith will always do something outrageous in someone's house. So in someone's very famous house... He, he turns around to do a link and knocks over one of their vases and it smashes on the floor. Now, obviously, we've had that vase made up and replaced them, but that celebrity's face when that vase goes <laughs> over is an absolute picture. Uh, and another very, very, very famous person's house, the cameraman puts uh, dog shit on the carpet by accident. So Keith blames the cameraman, you know, shouting at the cameraman, Terry, what have you done? Don't worry, I'll clear it up. So pause white wine on it then red wine <laughs> then he pours salt on it and then he gets scissors and cuts through <laughs> their carpet and obviously they are there and they're mortified but you know we've laid the carpet there and we know Name what names. we're doing come on uh, I, I can't uh, can I tell you Spoiler it's difficult that? isn't it because well, we you don't want to ruin it for I don't want to ruin it for the viewers but yeah, you know, we go to a house in Malibu uh, a Ooh. Hollywood star We've we've got a BAFTA award winner on there. You've we've got some got, great names. I mean, even in the first episode, I mean, was it hard to convince people to come on board and, and, and open up their houses? Okay, well, think about this. Right, this is the way the conversation went. Uh, we're bringing back through the keyhole. Can we snoop round your house? Most sane celebrities say, no way. Some people go, okay, then. Mm, all right, how much money? Okay, yeah, no, we'll do that. Yeah, no, that's fine. Who's doing it? Keith Lemon, no way. You know, and that's the way the conversation went. But some people said yes. And those people said, and I think, you know, what I'm most excited about is when, the people, when people view this is that celebrities themselves hopefully will see it and, 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 and see the spirit that we've made it in and say, you know what? Yeah, if, if I'm going to open myself up for someone to come around my house, why not? Keith Lemon, bring him in. You've got a coveted slot uh, after X Factor at 9.30 on ITV. Is that, yeah. is that daunting or is it exciting? I think it's uh, a bit of both, really. You know, you, you don't want to shed millions of viewers, X Factor views. You don't want... You know, because Keith Lemon is polarising for some people and, and we understand that, we accept that. And there's some grannies and uncles and aunts out there that are going to go, oh, I don't like this guy, I don't understand him, I don't get him. But we have tried to make him more ITV main channel, um, as in, you know, it is far less rude than Celebrity Juice. But we, we, wanted to, we want to keep his edge. We don't want to 
we don't want him to become Tim Vincent. So, you know, we've tried to keep as much Keith Lemon in there as possible without offending anyone um, and, uh, you know, without disappointing anyone as well. Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of cracks with him on ITV1 or what was what was ITV1 uh, with Sing If You Can and, and, and Lemonade. Yeah. I mean, do you think this is the one to, to, to finally crack it for him? Well, you could argue that Keith Lemon shouldn't be before nine o'clock, you know, full stop. And, you know, and Lemonade and Sing If You Can were both, they were family shows. And is Keith Lemon family? I don't know. You could argue that he sells out slightly when he becomes family because that's not, his cheeky nature isn't family. But, um, you know, hopefully this sort of slot is perfect for him. I think it, it could work and it should work. But, you know, we've all been wrong before. What makes a show successful? What makes people watch it? If we all knew that, then, you know, they would watch every single show that we made. Yeah. And just a quick one. I mean, Catchphrase and Surprise Surprise are, or have already been rejuvenated on, on ITV. I mean, do you think there's a danger that perhaps viewers might have revival fatigue? I think that if it's a good show, it's a good show. I don't think, you know, if it's old, if it's new, it doesn't matter. If the content's entertaining, if the host's good, if the talent involved are good, then I don't think it matters whether it was made 20 years ago or 20 minutes ago. I think a good show is a good show. Stephen, you were one of the viewers that enjoyed it. Mm. What did you make of it? I absolutely loved it. I was uh, quite surprised. I remember the old versions, both of the old versions. And I I, I sort of watched it with a bit of trepidation because I thought, Christ, what's going to (laughs) happen? But... um, it started and I was like, hang on, this is Keith Lemon being funny. That was the thing that really got me. He was actually funny in every sort of level and it didn't feel like he'd been watered down. So I, I particularly enjoyed it when he started to piss around in the first celebrity's house when he was wearing those clothes. Yeah, the wardrobe and, bit um, was really good. And then when Martine McCutcheon started swearing, I was like, <gasps> and I was, you know, genuinely, it, there was that, that, that frisson was there. But this is the thing, This is the, the marriage works really well because Keith Lemon is a celebrity obsessive or you know he's part of that world and so even though it's comedy it it kind of works it works perfectly and and having some of the kind of naff celebrities or big name celebrities they all flow and fit in and that's what um it it just felt really really seamless and uh and i and all i could think was i'm gonna watch this again Mm. you know so i I really enjoyed it there's a seal of approval lisa did you have any thoughts yeah i I think you you really got the tone right with, with with him because you know, I think he's perfect for the, for that nine thirty slot, and I think he just gets it right where fans will still love him, even though he's toned down quite significantly from Celebrity Juice. And I think people, you know, new people coming to it will will appreciate the humour. I think it's, I, I think it's really got that quite difficult line that that you've had to trade. I think it's got it spot on, and uh, and it is genuinely funny. And as you say, you love nosing around people's houses, yeah. and uh, you know, and 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 I think it's also warm, you know, because you you could. You could have sort of gone the other way and it could have been, you know, a bit, bit more sort of piss takey or bitchy or something. But I think it's, I think other celebrities would watch that and think, yeah, I would take part in it because it, it, it isn't mean. I think it's got that. enough bitchiness in it, you know, that mm. you, they still, he still humiliates them a bit yeah. or, or catches them. And, yeah. you know. Well, what I like about it is that, you know, when Keith Lemon walks into your house, Lloyd Grossman would never comment on your decor or make a judgment of your house. Keith Lemon walks in and he says, Oh, I like this front room. And straight away, you you think, oh, that's a lovely comment. And then you're thinking, hold on, but look what he's wearing. So if he thinks your front room's good, you must have a shit front room. You know, and that's the beauty of it. Thank you very much for coming on, Dan, and, and talking to us about it. Uh, Through the Keyhole opens its doors to viewers on Saturday, the 31st of August at 9.30pm on ITV. Uh, if you would like to come on Talking TV and discuss your new show, uh, please drop me an email on Jake. Dot canter at broadcastnow.co.uk. 
every instalment of Talking TV, we look ahead to television programmes soon to hit the airwaves. This episode, we start with Channel 4's follow-up to the broadcast award-winning Educating Essex. The 2-4 show has up sticks to a new school, the Thornhill Community Academy in Dewsbury, and changed its name to Educating Yorkshire. Crucially, however, the premise remains the same. Stuff the class and staff rooms full of fixed-rig cameras and let the action unfold. Here's a clip from the first episode, which airs on Channel 4 on the 5th of September at 9pm. Hey, bingo, got the big time, all of you. Wait outside isolation now. It's morning break and Mr Barraclough has just caught some students smoking behind the IT block. Right, who's been smoking then? Have you been smoking? Yes? Have you been smoking? Yeah. You've been smoking, haven't you? You've been smoking, haven't you? Yeah, I'll ask you again. Right, the three of you need to go into isolation. You're isolated for the rest of the day. Eh? Eh? Since when will that punishment for smoking? I didn't know you could get stuck uh, in inclusion for smoking. <laughs> <laughs> that was the rather brilliant uh, Friends double act of Hayley and Bailey. What did you make of this, Lisa? More of the same? Oh no, I love it. I, 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 you can't, you can't do enough of these shows. I think it's, it's just brilliant access, and it's, it's all about the characters, isn't it? And they've found fantastic people. I actually met the headmaster at um, the Sheffield Dockfest, and you know, just talking to him in the first thirty seconds, you're just thinking, I can completely see why they've got him. He's so passionate about what he's doing, and it's a really fascinating story where the school's got, you know, fifty percent white kids, fifty percent from ethnic minorities, and they deal with a racist issue in the in the first series. But he's, um, he's hilarious and he really believes in what he's doing and he's really inspiring and I you know I spoke to him for five minutes thought I want to be a teacher wow it's amazing yeah. <laughs> so, Stephen do you think they've, uh, Channel 4's got a bit of a willing formula here? Oh definitely so it's, uh, it's, it's so watchable and, and it's really funny I mean I hate children um, <laughs> uh, and can't stand anything to do with them and, um, and watched it and I was like Aww. and when we had the little 12 year old boy with a deep voice and the kind of homespun philosophy I was like, yeah, I loved him. And I loved Bailey with her drawn-on eyebrows. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you do one right and the other one goes wrong. And you have to start again, sir. And it and, was just it was teachers, very, very watchable. Uh, but really funny. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's life-affirming. Mm. And for someone like me, that's uh, quite... Well, I, I quite... think I would rather watch something like this than a scripted show any day. You know, for me, you can't beat real life. Mm. And I think that that's where you get the most drama. That's where you get the best comedy. That's where you find the best characters. Mm. And that's where you get the best relationships. And I think that, you know, that this sort of show, it writes itself quite literally. And I don't think you could write a better show. I mean, the thing that struck me is how much school has changed in you know, a reasonably short period of time. Well, I, was, I was watching it and I couldn't tell what year seven and year eight was. So I yeah. thought, well, how old are these kids? And then the, the, the old woman who went to the school and complained about being th- uh, them throwing snowballs at her husband. And I was like, I did worse than that every day. But I never got include, into the inclusion room or whatever it was. or And all the kind of weird punishments that you have to do now. And it, I mean, it was a bit of an eye-opener. That was incredible, that scene, wasn't it? When, when they get caught throwing yeah. snowballs at the pensioners. Because they, they are getting... There's three children, they're all getting told off. And you feel like you're in that room oh, yeah. and you're one of those children. Mr, <laughs> Mr. Spears yeah. was, partic- was the only teacher that was, of, of the old school. He was a bit of a scary bastard. Yeah, yeah. The others were all kind of polite and friendly, and you. But Mr. Spears was like, "Yeah, I'll have you," and so he was like my teachers at school. You know what I mean? Dan, they must have reams and reams of material. I mean, is it difficult to sift through that and knit some sort of story together? Well, again, it's about you know who is your showrunner, who is that experienced person that's done this show before, and once you have the casting, you're there, aren't you? And then you're choosing, I imagine, from lots of good stuff. 
and that is a good place to be in. And moving on to our next show, uh, it's Father Figure, the BBC One sitcom written by and starring stand-up comedian Jason Byrne. Uh, it started life on Radio 2 and features Byrne as a relatable dad, hampered by bad luck and his hapless family. The show is made by BBC In-House with Mrs Brown's Boys showrunner Stephen McCrum executive producing. Father Figure launches in September and here's a taste of what you can expect. Your neighbours don't know how to park, son. Or to leave the Volvo at an angle out there. An angle? Yeah, well, I couldn't find any spaces that suited me, so I had to stick my nose into a space I liked, hence the car's at an angle. <laughs> Hope nobody tears the arse off it while we're here. It's got a big bumper. You're the one with the big bumper. What? I swear to God, Tom, if he doesn't lay off the bickies, he'll die. And he won't die all nice and neat. Oh, no. Muggins here will have to sponge and bathe him as he takes another three years to slip away. (laughs) So, unfortunately, I think there was a bit of jiggery-pokery on the BBC preview site, so we've all ended up watching slightly different episodes. But I think we're all pretty much in agreement that uh, this this has got the makings of something, you know, that could be quite good. Stephen, you liked it particularly, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, again, I I, I approached this with trepidation because I thought this was going to be Mrs. Brown's boys. And I've seen Jason Byrne stand up quite a lot. And I've always thought, yeah, he's all right. You know, he's never been, you know, it's always sort of been at our level. It's never necessarily changed. I watched this. I was in love with it in the first two seconds. I was like, hang on, it's really working. And that mixture of sort of Irish sort of silliness, a little bit of of uh, surrealism and the kind of really quite downbeat sort of family uh, sitcom feel completely worked. I mean, I really liked it. I think if Outnumbered had a drunken one-night stand with Mrs Brown's boys, (laughs) then father figure is what you'd get. You know, that would be the bastard child. With Um, a bit of the royal family thrown in as well. Yeah, and, and I think that... Jason Byrne is very likeable, and I think that that helps. He you is, know? Yeah. And uh, I think that it's cast well. I think the kids are great. I think his dad's good. Mm. Um, and I think that some of the jokes you can see come in, but, you know, so what? Mm. You know, sometimes they're the best ones. The punchlines come thick and fast, mm. and, and almost like Jason's stand-up, you know, the subject matter scatters from one subject to another mm. to another. But, you know, you forgive it that, and there's some good callbacks in it. And, you know, I enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was enjoyable. It was wasn't on the level of Mrs. Brown's boys and uh, and I went to see Mrs. Brown's boys live because my mum loves the show right so I thought right I'm gonna go and see it and it was a master class in live comedy like there was uh, in the O2 I've never been able to watch a whole episode of Mrs. Well, Brown's it, boys. It, it, live at the O2 yeah. just to stand back to understand what he does Brendan and how he does it and to just to watch that many like people it was it was incredible mm, it was yeah. good old fashioned comedy and that's what father figures sort of mm, coming yeah. round to that mm. sort of little bit naughtier uh, than only fools and horses but trying to mm. emulate those those great but I thought, uh, had, I thought the, 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 the episode I saw all about the big chin <laughs> with a with a fantastic cameo from Peter Serafin. Oh yeah, I mean, but that that was very surreal. I mean, that had moments of kind of weirdness and creepiness and homoerotic this and drug addiction and all sorts of things thrown in. So it wasn't because I thought it was going to be very bland, but it actually has a little bit of little bit of grit. Lisa, you're keeping quiet. Were you not quite as bowled over uh, as the rest of us? Well, I wasn't as bowled over by. I think it was episode two I saw first of all, and but then I saw episode four and. 
and loved it actually. I thought it really it did make me so laugh, and I was yeah, the chin episode, and um, keep, and so keep I think that's bit viewers. yes, exactly. So I think you have to stick with a comedy, and you know you get you get involved in that world, and it does take a while to sort of set it up initially. But it, it, I thought it was it was well cast. I think it, the jokes were good. I think this will really work. I think it will really mm. sort of strike a chord with the audience who who do like Mrs. Brown's Boys, and I'm actually half Irish. My family love it, and I know they're gonna they're gonna love this they're as well. Fall in so. love with this one yeah, as well. yeah. It has a very strong voice, don't you think? I mean, and the, and the and the use of flashbacks to deliver punchlines is quite effective. I thought the use of flashback was actually one of the highlights of it. I really like those flashback scenes, and it was it was great to change the subject uh, and use that as a device. You've got to give it a chance, haven't you? You've got to have patience with it as well. And it's got it's had a really strong start. And you know, if they if they give it time, it could turn into a really really strong sitcom because. I think Jason probably would have learnt a lot from seeing it on telly as well himself. You know, you learn so much when you watch stuff back and he'll probably go on to improve it even further. So I think, you know, well done. If it's been on radio, does that mean there's like two series worth of material that you can use and things like that? Because that hopefully bodes well because that's always a problem with a single writer. Yeah, exactly. I don't think it had an extensive run on radio, but I I think clearly it's benefited from that from that switch because well, it felt it, it felt very it, yeah. grown up and professional yeah not an amateurish well not an amateurish amateurish is the wrong word but you know like that sort of sort of a thin stretched kind of you know comedy it felt like it had real depth and yeah. uh, and i think i think it probably you know it probably mirrors jason's extended family life and there's nothing wrong with that you know i'm a firm believer in write what you know about yeah. and you well, know i certainly identified with some of those characters <laughs> <laughs> you? which ones which ones oh, I can't Uh, that's slightly worrying for all of us on broadcast Um, thank you very much guys Uh, if you like what you've heard uh, please share us around and if you're not a broadcast subscriber please give us a go Uh, that's it for uh, this episode of Talking TV my name is Jake Cantor the producer was Matt Hill until next time goodbye you've been listening to Broadcast Talking TV recorded at Maple Street Studios